Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Brian Clegg, a well-known author of books on math and science. His latest book is Conundrum, which should delight and intrigue not only those who love math and science, but those who love solving puzzles. The best way that I can describe it is that it's a literary escape room with a series of puzzles to be solved, all of which contribute to a final puzzle that concludes the book. And, like the clues one finds in an escape room, Brian mercifully offers hints for the puzzles. Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Jim. Um, Yeah, I've enjoyed every single conversation we've had, including the English accent. (laughs) Uh, Okay, this book appears to be a labor of love and one that required a lengthy gestation period. How long did it take you to write it? Actually, it was surprisingly quick just because I enjoyed doing it frankly, more than any book I've ever written. So it took about three months to, to write, uh, but it, it was just so much fun to do. Okay. Yeah, I've noticed that. When I write books and I enjoy it, it's a labor of love and goes quickly. Otherwise, it's pulling teeth. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> uh, Brian, a key feature of your book is description. Many of hmm. the puzzles are ciphers, messages in code. The introduction to your book contains many of the standard ways to encode messages, Perhaps a good place to start would be to give a brief history of decryption and mention some of the encryption and decryption techniques for the ciphers in your book. But listeners shouldn't be frightened. Some ciphers are relatively easy to decrypt, and after a while your skills will improve and you'll enjoy the profit. You'll enjoy the process. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, I mean, it, it goes back certainly to, um, you know, the earliest known history that people have wanted to pass on messages that other people couldn't read. And some of the early techniques actually were physical. So uh, there was this famous ancient Greek one where they used to shave people he- people's heads, write the message on the heads, wait for the hair to grow back, uh, and then send them out with a message uh, so you couldn't find it. And, and some of the uh, some of the secret messages, if you like, in the book are a bit like that. So it's, it's the message is in plain sight, but you can't necessarily see where it is. Uh, so there's one, for instance, that, that's literally just a, the spines of a series of books, and there's a message in those book spines, but, but if you don't know it's there, you'll never see it. Um, but then we move on to techniques that are really intended to hide uh, information, typically by replacing one letter with another one. So the very simplest ones, things like the, the thing known as the Caesar cipher that, that's supposed to be used by Julius Caesar, literally just takes the alphabet and shifts it along a bit. So you might say replace an A with a C, B with a D, and so on all the way through the alphabet. So you start with simple things like that, but then it works up to them being a little more sophisticated. Uh, but as you say, it really isn't too scary. And there, there are little things to help you. So if you, if you can use a spreadsheet like Excel, I, I provide a, a spreadsheet that can do a lot of the, the hard work for you. You know, one of the things that I found that as I read the book, I'd want to have the internet handy because many of the puzzles mm. require a little low-level research. Well, certainly general knowledge, yeah. I, I mean. Uh, in, in a sense, it's a kind of 
here into my brain because a lot of the things in there were things I just happened to know. I thought I'll just throw them in. Uh, and some people will have overlapping general knowledge. Uh, other bits, yes, you definitely will have to look something up or whatever. But I think that's part of the fun, to be honest, of, of going out there and finding out more about the world. Yeah, that's one of the things that I enjoyed the book about the book uh, is that with any book of this type, what happens is you pick up sort of a lot of general knowledge that you didn't have. And I'm from the generation that thinks that this is fun and stuff you should have rather than just typing it into Google. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, if you, if you can dredge something out of your memory, it, it may, it's rather satisfying that you could do that. But you don't have to have that knowledge. You can. You certainly can find it all. Yeah, well, I doubt that anybody there is a clone of Brian Clegg. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's describe the structure of the book in two ways. The types of puzzles that need to be solved, other than simply being ciphers, and the categories of puzzles. You have 20 categories. Rather than just read a list of 20 nouns representing the categories, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on some of the features in each category that I found appealing. So we'll start off with category one, which is literature. One of the puzzles involved doing a little arithmetic with numbers and book titles. You need to know such things as the number of towers in the second book of The Lord of the Rings. Of course, this is why having the internet handy is almost a necessity. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Obviously, there's a lot of number-based things in this uh, because it is partly maths-based, um, mathematics-based, um, and so it, it's, it was thinking about things like, you know, other book titles with numbers in them, uh, and then we'll just do a little puzzle pulling that together. Uh, and some of them, like the the towers in the Lord of the Rings, are pretty straightforward. You know, if, if you've seen the films or read the book, you may well know how many towers there are. But again, it's pretty easy to find out. I think if you've read the movie or seen, if you've read the book or seen the movie, the thirty-nine steps, you show how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. It was remade, thirty-nine steps, to be fair. But yeah, it's, it's a lovely classic movie, actually. Yeah, and a classic book. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that appeals is that you don't just get the answer to the puzzle and move on. Each puzzle, and there are ten in each category, such as literature, supplies you with a character in a string, ten characters long. These 10 character strings are the components of the final puzzle. And by the way, if you work your way successfully through the entire book, and Brian tells me that people already have, and solve this final puzzle, your name will be posted on the Hall of Fame in the book's website. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's partly to pull the whole thing together, but also it's a way of being able to check for yourself because all, all the, I do have clues in the book, but what do I, do? I don't actually have solutions. Uh, so at the end of each section, after doing 10 puzzles, you can effectively check to make sure you've got the right answers because the, the last bit won't come together unless all 10 are right. Uh, and I, the most amazing thing actually in terms of the, the website and the Hall of Fame is that somebody posted to me the, the correct solution less than a week after the book came out. Uh, so they've gone through 200 puzzles uh, in less than a week and got the correct solution. Uh, so far to date, so it's been out about uh, about six months. We've got three three people have solved it so far. So did, did you, plenty to go for there. Did you ask the individual who solved this in in uh, inside a week how much time he or she spent on it? I, I didn't, I must admit, but it must have been quite a few hours, I think. So yeah. obviously they got deeply into it. But, you know, one of the things about a book like this and about puzzles is that they're addictive. Um, mm. You know, I, uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I've got Sudoku on my cell phone for whenever I have uh, spare time 
just killing time. And I find myself sometimes I'm getting so into it that I forget what it was that I was supposed to be doing. And this <laughs> individual just took a week out of his, his or her life. Oh, I, I think they must have done. But, but I ought to stress, you know, you certainly don't have to do the whole thing at once. It's something you can just dip in. Uh, you know, I, I've got people I know who, who sort of do, are doing a section a month or whatever. They just do a bit when they fancy it. Um, and uh, I, it can work either way. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, because, for instance, there are some puzzles which what you can do is uh, you can sort of solve the puzzle and go on to the next one. Or do you recommend, for instance, in each one of the categories, each one of the categories has 10 questions in it, and some of them will probably be fairly easy and some of them probably not so much. And if somebody gets stuck on one, do you recommend that they just bail for the time being and go on to the next category? Because it's not necessary to solve category one to go on to category two. No, that's right. Uh, I mean, uh, there are clues in the back for the first 16 sections. So if you are really stuck, it, it is worth having a look at the clue. Uh, but finding that, yeah, w with all this kind of lateral thinking required, uh, it's often good to put something to one side, do something else and come back to it. So yeah, no problem at all moving on and then coming back to it later. Okay, category two is geography, which is a neglected topic in today's educational system, at least in the States. One of your puzzles is, what is the capital of the only country whose name starts with L and has 13 letters? Um, now, I was thinking of countries as I went through this, and the only two countries starting with L were Laos and Lothoso. Um, and I knew those off the top of my head, which sort of surprised me. Are there others? Yes, there are. Sadly. <laughs> because neither of those are long enough. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of a double one, actually, this, because it's a word that's... Uh, it's a word that's not spelt quite how it's pronounced. So it has a, at least one extra letter in it that people won't necessarily think of. So it's kind of a trick question, but it's a genuine country. It, it has 13 letters um, and there aren't that many out there, as you say. You know, one of the things that I am curious about is because I always think all these general knowledge things add to you and make you a more complete person is that um, I remember when I went home to visit my parents once when I was in college or graduate school, they'd saved a sixth grade test that I took on geography in which I got a 93, and I couldn't no. answer a single question. And nowadays, <laughs> I don't think geography is even mentioned as, as a subject in the United States. And it used to be very, uh, very heavily emphasized. And I'm just wondering if the same thing happens uh, over on your side of the pond. Well, it certainly still like, exists as a separate separate subject, um, and you uh, you know there are university degrees in geography, um, but it's very different, I think, to the way we used to think of it. In the sense, we used to think of physical geography, so the geography of places, and there's a lot of emphasis now in geography also put on on social geography. So there's quite a lot of sociology in the subject these days. Uh, so yes, we do still study it here, uh, though I, I, it's not as you know, when I went to school, it was something everybody did um, through to, uh, you know, the, the sort of middle of high school. Whereas now I'd say quite a lot of people drop it after when they're sort of 12, 13, that kind of age. Uh, yeah, that seems right to me. Um, one of the things that people will appreciate when they get to category three is that there's a lot of pop culture going on. Category three is movies. Clearly mm. you're a classic movie buff. And I think yeah. readers will appreciate the fact that your clues sometimes suggest which type of cipher has been used for the encryption. 
Yeah, well, I think particularly early on, you know, you, you, you need a bit of hand-holding <laughs> as you're going. So in principle, all of them could be done without looking at the clues, but there's no no harm sort of getting back, uh, sort of the clue in the back for each puzzle uh, all the way up to section 16. Um, and the idea is, you know, have a go at it, but if you're not struggling a little bit, it'll point you one way or another in the right direction, but it just gets a little bit more cryptic as you go further through, because hopefully you're getting into the mindset of it. It's a bit like doing crosswords or something like that. When you first see a cryptic crossword, it can be pretty mind-boggling because you don't know how the person writing the crossword's brain works. But after a while, you start getting a feel for how they work and hopefully kind of key into the way they're thinking. That's a very good analogy. Um, And as I said, one of the things that I sort of liked about this book is that it takes topics from all over, as we'll see when we go through the category. But because I'm a scientist, or at least I like to think of mathematics as a science, and I like all the physical sciences especially, I was happy to see that most of the sciences are well represented throughout the book. So if people are into puzzles but not into sciences, they'll learn something. And I think that's a good thing. Well, hopefully that's true of most of the topics, you know, because in the end, nobody's a total polymath. There's always some subjects you perhaps don't know much about. And I hope it will extend uh, extend your, your, your experience. And as you say, learn something, but not in a painful way, just a, just a bit of fun learning. Yes, that's exactly what I think education lacks nowadays, is the fact that education is competing with entertainment for the minds of, uh, you know, for the minds of, of children and young people. And I think education has to move with the times and uh, become a little more entertaining. And the truth is this, um, um, I'm not sure whether or not you're familiar with this because you're, uh, you write a different type of book, but um, textbooks often have what are called enrichment. And what, what they try and do is they try and, uh, in, in mathematics anyway, they try and present problems in such a way or about such a uh, 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 about material that will be considered interesting and entertaining, because at least the you know the textbook industry realized that that this is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's get on to category four, which is chemistry. One of the things I appreciated about the book is that there, there are a number of opportunities for the reader to learn more about subjects which, like chemistry, I consider important. Movies, not so much. Um, (laughs) I liked including Kekulé's, I don't know if that's the way to pronounce the guy's name, Discovery of the Structure of Benzene, which is a great story. That's right. Yeah, he he essentially, or he claimed anyway, uh, that he came up with the idea. Benzene is in a ring form, a sort of hexagonal ring, that he he, he had this dream uh, about a snake eating its tail um, when he, uh, during the time when he was trying to work out the structure of benzene and, and sort of woke up suddenly inspired with this idea that benzene had this ring structure. That's right. And, and it, it, you know, in, in the book, the way it's using it really is just the, the visual appearance uh, of that benzene structure, using it to, to hide a piece of information. Uh, but as you say, it's, it's quite fun just to popping in little things, little bits of uh, facts as we go. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, category five is music. You run the glad gamut from classical to pop, which I appreciated because I like uh, uh, I like all forms of music, whether they're you know whether they're classical or pop. No, I don't like I don't like rap. I don't think that's <laughs> music. Uh, <laughs> I think you got to have some melody to make music, but you got a lot of things with some great melodies. 
One of the puzzles actually requires one to be able to play or read a simple musical phrase, but I'm guessing that there's either an app or a website that one could do that. Well, in fact, the uh, the book has its own associated website, and just in case somebody isn't able to do that, uh, you can actually go onto that website and it will play you that phrase, that specific phrase. Um, so if you if you can't work it out from the music, because it's basically you know the sheet music there, then you can go on there and have a listen to it. Yeah, but in fairness, in fairness, if you've had two weeks worth of piano lessons, you can probably play it. I guess so. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) It's pretty straightforward. Um, Anyway, category six is biology. There's a lot of stuff from DNA, but I was glad to see that there was some material on whole organisms as well. Biology Hmm. has ascended significantly in importance since I was young. I, I think so. And, you know, I think it's escaped, you know, infamously. The, the physicist, uh, Ernest Rutherford, uh, said that all science was either physics or stamp collecting, basically saying that things like biology were just about going out there and looking at things and cataloging them. And the thing, and it's basically molecular biology. That, that uh, So things like DNA, but also all the incredible molecular machine, machinery that goes on inside living things that's transformed biology. But as you say, you know, it's, it's not all about that kind of detail. So sometimes, yes, you do want to have stuff that's just about uh, about animals or, or plants or whatever. Yeah, I don't know what's happened in uh, I don't know what's happened in uh, Great Britain, but mm-hmm. I do know that in the United States, when I was going to college, which was the late fifties and early sixties, the sexy science was physics because. We just had world, you know, World War II had been concluded with the atomic bomb, and in addition to which, scientists were starting to discover, uh, starting starting to discover uh, problems concerning the origin of the universe with the cosmic microwave background. But nowadays, the sexy subject seems to be biology because it's so related to the healthcare industry, so related to things like cloning developments that excite and intrigue us, and. One of the things that sort of worries me is that some of the physical sciences are, you know, maybe getting, uh, maybe getting left behind in this. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's true of, of physics uh, because, you know, there's enough interesting stuff going on, things like gravita- gravitational waves and interesting stuff with quantum physics and stuff, uh, that that's not the case. I, I think chemistry has certainly suffered a little bit for kind of falling between the two of them. Um, but what, what I would say... To people about sort of the difference between physics and biology uh, is that it's physics is incredibly simple um, people normally sort of look slightly mind-boggled about this because of course the math in physics can be quite complicated but physics itself takes a very simple picture of the world whereas biology has to deal with incredibly complicated structures you know that the human brain is the most complicated structure we know of in the universe um, uh, and so you know, it's, in a way, it's quite pleasing, I think, that biology is, it has come on so much. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, to give, you know, there's a lot of math associated with DNA. Um, mm-hmm. There's a tremendous amount of math associated with DNA. And, of course, there's always been a lot of math associated with genetics, which is, you know, which DNA is a component. So it's not that, you know, it's not that biology is, biology is out of the stamp collecting category it's actually uh, it's actually going through maybe the major changes that we saw in physics at the mm-hmm. end of the tw- end of the nineteenth century when I can't remember what it was, the guy I think it was von Jolly of Germany who said the only thing left to do in physics was uh, 
add a few more decimal points to the count, to the basic constants. And that that's right. He, he was he was yeah. he was he was Planck's uh, physics uh, lecturer who, and he was trying to persuade Planck to take a music degree instead of a, a physics degree. Oh wow! Because <laughs> <laughs> Planck was a great um, pianist, but luckily he went for the physics. <laughs> You know that's interesting because I've uh, in in one of my books I had to research Boltzmann. Boltzmann was also a great pianist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, music. I think music and and science, particularly physics, does seem to go together quite a lot. When I was at university, um, I was involved in our local sort of in our music society in the college I was at, and and to say about half of the people who helped run the music society were scientists. There always seems to have been this tie. I mean, Einstein, obviously, famously, was a violinist. And a violinist, not of note, but of sufficient ability that he could play, you know, that he could play trios with some of the great uh, musicians of the time. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm impressed by that because I play piano, but in a very mediocre fashion. Um, anyway, category seven is toys and games. You have a very nice collection of games here in which to place your puzzles, including two of my favorites, bridge and backgammon. Does it help to know how to play these games? Uh, I'd, I'd say it, it isn't really necessary because what what I've mostly done is used uh, the board, or in the case of, of bridge, the the notation used to represent a, a, a set of bridge hands uh, as a way of communicating something in a hidden way. Because it's always struck me, it, it we're a bit back to this the guy with the the shaven head. Um, but if you have just a backgammon set, say, lying out, and I must admit, I'm a, I'm a great backgammon fan uh, too, uh, just lying out on a table, you could use that to pass a piece of information by the way you put the pieces on the board. Uh, now, it might not make any sense as a game, as the way the game's played, but to somebody just looking at it casually, it's just a backgammon board that has a few pieces on it, but you can put information into it, uh, and that's really what it's all about. Well, I think what fascinated me is I had a uh, I had an email exchange with you in which your bridge mm. hand, although you're not a bridge player, was incredibly fascinating. Now, admittedly, there's a deficiency in your bridge hand, which is correctable and does relate, I'm pretty sure, to the puzzle uh, mm-hmm. that the bridge. <laughs> but no. nonetheless, for somebody who was just conveying random information and information from a from a you know a, a cipher or coded message standpoint you happen to have ac- it's sort of accidentally like deciding to write a cipher and all of a sudden the cipher was composed in a world class sonnet <laughs> even though you didn't intend it so so props to you Brian <laughs> oh. Okay, anyway, category eight is astronomy. Absolutely one of my favorite subjects. If I had if I had the nine lives that a cat is supposed to have, I'd devote at least one of them to studying astronomy. I love astronomy, and I particularly like the Halley's Comet puzzle that you had. I didn't check all the puzzles, but I hope there's none which involves Pluto having been demoted from planetary status. Uh, no, as it happens, there isn't. Um... Do, do, do I gather from that you, you, you're not particularly enthusiastic about that? Uh, wow. As far as I'm concerned, big error, huge error. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that it's being, you know, the decision on this was made by people far more knowledgeable than I, than I am, but you could have kept it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, I, I heard. <laughs> and there's I, such I, a, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I can understand, you know, people's sadness at the loss, but equally, 
you know, we, we have to bear in mind the reason they did it primarily is that there are so many other bodies out there of a similar size that you either have to have, you know, the original set of planets plus another 2030, probably, by the time you've found everything, or you say reason i think quite reasonably actually pluto is more like these other things but yeah it, it was a shame in some ways i admit what was really a shame is once again referring to the fact that here i am old guy but the <laughs> discovery of pluto by means of noting the mo- noting its motion on photographic plates over the course of time that was a fascinating story of scientific discovery when i was growing up and mm. when you throw pluto into the trash heap of of minor, you know, lesser objects, you're also throwing this wonderful story away, or at least that's what I felt. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I say it's, uh, there's definitely a emotional attachment to it, if, if, if nothing else. But uh, I, I'm not that worried I have to, uh, about it going. I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of the argument, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, category nine is murder mystery. And I just love this one. It was a classic locked room puzzle, and it's up to the reader to decipher the clues. The last puzzle is to choose among several alternatives, all of which would have appealed to Sherlock Holmes. Well, many of them would because they're really <laughs> bizarre. Yeah, that's right. I, I've always loved murder mysteries. And if I, I have a sort of sideline of, of, of writing murder mystery books just for fun. Um, and uh, there's really nothing more fun, I think, than a, a locked room mystery where you, you have to work out how something's happened that it looks like it's impossible. Um, so I wanted to put that in just, just for a little bit of a break. So it's very different from the other categories. It, it's a single, effectively a single standalone uh, puzzle uh, where you have to work out what's happened um, and as you say just putting in some slightly bizarre things is part of the entertainment uh, I did really enjoyed doing that one yeah I can imagine I enjoyed looking at it um, category 10 is politics good news it's mm-hmm. non-controversial historical <laughs> stuff because at this very moment even while we're doing this broadcast the impeachment trial of Donald Trump is on television and so you stay away from all that, and so good for you. Um, it's mostly U.S. and British politics, but I think readers on either side of the pond will need to research many of the puzzles because, quite frankly, it. Uh, uh, well, I'm not a politics junkie. Maybe you are, and maybe a politics junkie would be more comfortable and would know a lot of this off the top of their head, but I sure didn't. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the things, you know, like, Names of presidents, uh, I think both sides these days uh, at the Atlantic would be reasonably well known because certainly over here, we're now more a lot more familiar with uh, U.S. politics than people were 20, 30 years ago. Um, but yes, there's bound to be the odd thing here, I, I, I guess, that may need a little bit of research. Yeah, and, and it's also uh, in the United States, I was... I was surprised because I used to think that I was relatively on top of things. I don't know who the current British prime minister. Oh, yes, I do. It's Boris Johnson. That's right. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay, But I have no idea who the who the person simply because Boris Johnson is affiliated with, you know, who. But but I have no idea who who any of the five guys or the four guys and a woman preceding him were. It wasn't Theresa May there sometime. 
Theresa May was immediately prior to uh, Boris Johnson. That's oh, okay. right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm yep. not quite as dense as I thought. Uh, <laughs> uh, category eleven is food and drink. Um, you mentioned that you like uh, uh, that you like mystery stories. Nero Wolfe, who was my favorite mm-hmm. detective, once said that cooking is the subtlest and kindliest of the arts. Love that quote. You will improve <laughs> your puzzle solving skills in this section, but you probably won't want to try out any of the recipes. No, I think that's fair. <laughs> but uh, I mean, one of the nice things about um, food and drink, of course, is bringing back this science idea that it, a lot of it is actually chemistry lurking underneath there. Uh, but again, you, you're not going to need to go back to your uh, your chemistry lessons to to get to these. Yeah, the only the only thing I know about cooking that is chemistry, other than the boiling point of water. Is somebody once mentioned to me, and this person is a foodie, so uh, I don't know whether the term foodie is uh, uh, familiar to you, but it's someone yep. who really loves food. Uh, the process of, I think it is, fry, uh, frying food involves something called the Mallard reaction. Are you familiar it, what, with this? That's right. It's basically anything typically where something goes brown when you cook it. So it applies to meat when it browns, but it's also things like bread when you toast it. Uh, and it, it's, you know, a change in the, the carbohydrates in the, in the material, I think, uh, that's happening. Uh, I'm another example, you know, when an egg goes white, it's the proteins in the egg are actually changing shape. Uh, so when it goes from that sort of clear, runny substance, the white of an egg, to being that white, rubbery substance uh, that's actually literally proteins so these really complicated molecules are all tangled up changing their shape uh, so there's quite interesting stuff going on in food and drink but as i say it, it's often the words we're playing around with here because uh, in the end i'm a writer and so some of the puzzles are definitely word oriented yeah well chapter 12 yeah one of my favorite chapters because category 12 is mathematics In addition to the decryption that is an overriding theme in each chapter, you cover some classics here. That means classics in the mathematical sense, including probability, matrix multiplication, complex numbers. And I remember reading about complex numbers in your previous book, shameless plug here, Are Numbers Real? (laughs) And the Russell and Epimenides paradoxes, which have uh, fascinated me over the course of the years. Yeah, I I think, I I mean, there's so many opportunities with mathematics to uh, play around with things. And of course, in the end, all encryption is uh, a mathematical uh, manipulation. So what you're typically doing is representing a letter as a number. So you might say E is the fifth letter in the alphabet. And what you actually do when you encrypt it is add something to it or transform it in some way. So a lot of these puzzles are about the way you transform information uh, change it from one thing to another. Uh, as, a, as you say, there are also sort of logic-type puzzles as well. Category 13 is sport. The focus here is on the Olympics, but soccer, rugby, and baseball also show up. And believe me, what Americans know about rugby is like zero. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, I don't think you're going to have to need the, read the rule book and learn how the game is played in order to be able to solve the puzzle. And I'm not sure that the baseball puzzle has anything to do with baseball. Not really, which is probably just as well, because like most English people, I know very little about baseball, just just as you would uh, feel about rugby. Rugby, incidentally, is, is actually really quite like football um, uh, in, in the way it's played. So it's, it's one with a sort of oval-shaped ball that's picked up and run with, rather well, than one you just kick. there are a lot of collisions kick. in rugby. Yeah. And that's similar yeah. to football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, I'm... 
I have to put my cards on the table here. I, I'm not a great sports person, um, but what it's more about is, is the, the the sort of things that go around the games, if you like, rather than the actual knowing how to play the game itself. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, category 14, you refer to as transport. Um, I call it transportation. Um, the emphasis here is highly Eurocentric. And, oh, well, lots of Americans visit Europe so they could learn something useful by working the puzzles in this section, especially those who are planning on using the London Underground. Yeah. Uh, Better I... get a map. <laughs> the, the easily found online. Yeah, uh, I'm sure everything is easily found online these days. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't really apologize for the fact there are some European sort of things in there. Uh, I think it's nice having a mix. There's plenty of American uh, things too for people on our side of the pond to uh, get confused by. But yeah, it's just a bit of fun. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that has always interested me is, is for some reason I find subways fascinating. And a few mm. years ago, my wife is, uh, my wife is Taiwanese and we visited Taiwan and she speaks Chinese fluently. And of course, I can barely manage to, you know, I can read a Chinese menu in English, but I have no knowledge of Chinese at all. But what was interesting to me was that the subway system was absolutely identical to the one in New York in the fact, mm-hmm. and she was confused. And I said, look, it's really easy they, because they had the map on the, uh, on the ceiling above. And I said, you just get on the blue line at this station and you switch to the red line on that station and then take it to the destination. And I'm wondering whether or not there's sort of a universal way that all subways are presented. You would probably know more about this because there are major metros in most European cities and not in the United States. Yeah. um, I mean, the, the representation is quite interesting. I mean, certainly one of the big breakthroughs which started in London um, with London Underground was uh, the realization that the map doesn't have to physically be the same shape. Uh, so this is topology, really. It doesn't have to be the same shape as it actually is in the world, as long as everything is represented in terms of the, the way the line connects as a network. Um, and so the actual London Underground map um, that's used to show where all the different stations are on the different lines, different colors, um, actually physically does not resemble what's happening in the overground world, as it were, um, because you don't need that. Uh, and to start with, when they, when they were drawing these maps out, they tried to make them the same shape as the real world, and they got in a horrible mess with that. So I think that was one of the really big moves forward in the way these things are demonstrated, that topologically, it's not a matter of the shape, it's just how the networks connect together that you need to know. That's very interesting. I did not know that. I mean, it just, you know, you see them all, they're all, you know, they're all straight lines with branch straight lines. And uh, uh, it just struck me that that's the obvious way to do it. But of course, nothing's obvious at first. People have to think about it and then decide what to do. Category 15 is TV. And many of the shows struck me as being of British origin, but I appreciated the nod to one of my favorite TV shows from long ago, The Man from Uncle. Um, I love that show. Uh, and yeah, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, um, I don't know whether they have this in Britain, but they, we have retro, retro TV channels over in the United States, which, uh, mm-hmm. um, which are uh, um, devoted exclusively to shows, for instance, they're 
the Twilight Zone just goes on forever. You can, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you can find it on any number of retro uh, channels. But for instance, The Man from Uncle is retroed on one of my TV stations, and I wonder whether it happens over there. Oh, also The Saint, which I love. Yeah, That's yeah. British. Um, yeah. Oh, no, uh, no, we we do ahead. get The Man from, from Uncle cropping up occasionally but we don't have quite as many channels um and so that i don't think there are quite as many dedicated to retro subjects of course these days you you may well find some old um shows turning up on something like netflix or amazon or whatever that where you can see the old uh the old versions on there but yeah it was it was a, it was a very it was a fun show in its time i think the man from uncle oh absolutely um and in fact, that's sort of what characterizes a lot of shows back from that era. If you think of that era, and I, I don't think deep thought, so this is not a deep thought, but that era was an era in which we were worried about the end of the world coming through nuclear war. And mm-hmm. some of the shows that were produced during that era are absolutely delightful. And it, the comedies were funny and innocent. And nowadays, the comedies that are funny, at least in the United States, tend to be sort of edgy. Um, mm. And uh, it, it's it's funny because it's a relatively peaceful and tranquil time. Um, Present-day politics uh, exempted from that. But mm. I'm, I'm not worried about the thing that worries me most about the world ending is climate change. And... Mm. Uh, that's, you know, climate change, climate change doesn't happen as fast as a thermonuclear war. Yeah, no, that's quite right. And also, it's difficult sometimes, as I'm sure you're aware, politically to persuade people that it even exists in some places. But uh, yeah, I'm absolutely with you on climate change as, as the major threat that we face and need to do something about. It's difficult to persuade people living in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I might have been hinting at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, category 16 is technology. From this point on, no hints are given in the back of the book. You'll need some knowledge of tech. For instance, what Octal is. Well, of course, you're going to find that out on the Internet. And also some knowledge of tech history. Anybody remember the Commodore Pet? Yeah, that's right. I mean... I, I confess some of this is being a certain age. So my, my first home computer was actually a Commodore 64. Um, so, uh, and I, we, we had a, an old Commodore pet at work that we used to use as a sort of demonstration of what things were like in the dark ages. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be fun to get back to this kind of thing. Yeah. I, oh, I agree. Um, and for those who feel that the humanities have been neglected, category 17 is art. There's some classic art, some impressionism, and even some Rubik's Cubism for you to deal with, in addition to the usual or unusual decryption puzzles that characterize this book. Yeah, I mean, Rubik's Cube is just a lovely opportunity to get people to think spatially, I I guess. Uh, And some of the other ones are are visually almost playing on the idea of of how uh, encryption works. Um, whether it's, you know, in terms of the, you can take the, uh, the structure of a picture, uh, the way it's laid out and perhaps get information from that. Um, also I must admit one of my, one of my daughters is a, a, a uh, has a fine art degree. So it was, uh, she gave me a little bit of inspiration in there. Okay. I hope those degrees are more useful in Britain than they are over here because I have two members of my family one who has an advanced degree in history of art and one who has an advanced degree in history of religion. 
And mm-hmm. there just aren't the opportunities for people to pursue, you know, to pursue the scholastic and academic careers in these subjects that there have been in the past. And I think that's sort of tragic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. and it's probably the same here to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, in fact, one of the members of my family is uh, is married someone who's Irish who also has a degree in uh, uh, in history of art, and it's it's very difficult for them. Um, anyway, category eighteen is physics. Many of the great names and great developments of physics appear in this section. There's even a problem that would satisfy the student who always asks, "Into what formula do I plug these numbers?" Yeah, I. I and the only thing I would say, you know. Uh, again, if people are a bit scared about uh, sort of formulae and the, the the nasty mathematics that goes on in physics, it, it really isn't like that. Uh, it's more using some of the uh, almost the appearance of things in physics uh, in order to uh, to work something out. That, and admittedly, you know, there is one there is one formula in there, but but I, I don't think it's too complicated. Okay, category nineteen is history. And the emphasis is on British history here, which is, you know, which considering that uh, that's who you are, that's where the book is being published, perfectly reasonable. But there was a wide, uh, a a large amount of history here, some from the era of Greece and Rome, a nod to history on this side of the Atlantic, and even a little bit of history before there was history. Yeah, um, I I, I always found... You know prehistory, so uh, uh, the sort of prehistoric sites and that kind of thing, fascinating. Uh, in fact, when I was at university um, and trying to decide what to do at the end of my physics degree, uh, I was seriously considering going into archaeology. Um, and it's just, I think it's just fascinating, partly because we don't have, you know, the books to tell us what was happening back then. You have to work it out. It's a puzzle in its own right, trying to work out out as a a prehistoric site. Uh, So I I thought that's quite a fun thing to to dip into a little bit. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that has happened is, uh, you know, I remember the quote that those who do not remember the mistakes of history are condemned to repeat them. Um, But I think I, I think history is a lot like uh, some of the humanities in the United States. It's not that the humanities are getting pushed aside for the sciences in the United States because there's still mm. the same appalling level of uh, appalling level of failing to understand uh, uh, a lot of the basic scientific truths that you and I take for granted. But what is happening is that it is getting pushed aside for politically correct or trendy subject material, which is basically, you know, the next generation is going to think, what are these people thinking? Um, And I don't know whether or not that's happening again uh, in Great Britain, but education in the United States is getting transformed, and I'm not sure that it's getting transformed in a good way. I'm sure that's true in in some aspects. Um, you, You would hope, obviously, as you say, history has so many important lessons that uh, that it can be incorporated in a, in a useful way that you can take those lessons from history. Uh, I think it is important, obviously, to incorporate things that are more modern, things you know that have happened in, say, in the 20th century, as well as looking further back. Uh, but it's how you use it, I guess, that's important. You know, that's one of the reasons that I think a book like yours is more than just a book of puzzles. What it is, is it's an, you know, it's... A, uh, I hate to use the expression tasting menu, 
But to a certain extent, one of the things, having so many categories available, um, most of the people who, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know whether or not puzzles, you know, people who are addicted to puzzles tend to be more math science people. But um, there are so many oddball, interesting facts in your book. And I'm a big fan of interesting facts that someone might for instance, look at uh, Kekulé's um, discovery of the structure of benzene or some of the things concerning history or literature, and hopefully they'll say to each other, you know, that's that looks interesting. Why don't I look into that a little more? And that's one of the big advantages that having the internet and the resources of the internet that offer us give us today that we didn't have in the past. Much easier right. to explore these things. That's totally true. And yeah, I, I do really hope that will happen. And it certainly works for me. You know, in writing something like this, I am always darting off into different bits of the internet, finding out new stuff myself, you know, uh, as I'm going along. Yeah, I think I, you know, I'm a writer as well. And I do that, you know, I do that too. I mean, when something interests me, that's one of the great things about, you know, back in the old days, you'd have to go to the library, you'd have to find a book, it would be the wrong book. Um, I'm, uh, I don't know whether or not you remember this, but in Carl Sagan's Cosmos, um, he mm -hmm. tells the story of when he was going into, as a young child, he went into a library and asked for a book on stars and the librarian brought him back a book on movie stars. <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and that would happen mm. in the library. You wouldn't be able to get what you want and ooh, that you'd come back and you'd find wrong book. And so it was such a long, uh, such a long path to get to the material that you wanted. And now with the internet, you make mistake the same mistakes, but they're resolved very quickly. And so, in many respects, I think the internet is one of the tools that speeds up how fast we are learning about the world and how fast our knowledge is improving. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, when I first started writing books twenty years ago. Um, I would have to spend quite a lot of time in libraries getting hold of uh, books from different libraries and that kind of thing. Whereas now the vast majority, I can actually access the information directly online. You can go directly to scientific papers or to, uh, you know, a book in uh, on Google Books or whatever and, and find out information far more effectively. I'm, I'm not doing down libraries. I'm, a, I'm still a very great supporter of libraries uh, for people who uh, perhaps want to read something in a bit more depth but don't have access to it, but certainly shouldn't knock the internet in this respect. Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree to you. agree with you. If you want depth, you got to go to a library. you got to get a book. You can't mm -hmm. get depth on the internet. But yeah. there's a lot to be said for shallow. Big fan. <laughs> yeah. There really is. I mean, yep. I consider, you know, I consider to be uh, a person to be well educated if they have a shallow knowledge of a lot of stuff. You may remember uh, C.P. Snow saying um, that if, you know, that knowing about velocity and, inter and acceleration was the equivalent of can you read English and knowing the second law of thermodynamics was the equivalent of have you read a work of Shakespeare? And I still think something like that is true. You want to have an education which has you read a lot, something of Shakespeare and has you learn about the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. Yeah. Okay. 
And we come to the final category. Category 20 is cryptography. It's fitting that the book concludes with this topic as it's the heart of the book. When you solve this puzzle, you're ready to put all the sections together and enter the Conundrum Hall of Fame with the other three people. <laughs> well, three at a time of recording. I'm sure more. Okay. Now, if I uh, were to guess, there would be three guys. Uh, yeah. I mean, you don't have to give your – well, I, I do actually have the proper names of the people, but uh, I, the Hall of Fame can be a nickname, so it's not necessarily obvious. But, yes, there are three so far uh, male contributors but that doesn't mean it's going to change and i would say by the way that the very last puzzle of them all uh involves the the enigma machine the the uh the encoding machine that was used during the second world war by the germans and and the breaking of which was a major uh step forward towards uh the end of the the second world war so that was quite nice to finish with the enigma machine uh as a way of pulling the whole thing together yeah, I and in fact, one of the things that uh, you know, one of the things that I remember that relates to cryptography is um, I uh, is a book by uh, I think its first name was George G H Hardy was a mathematician in uh, a very well known mathematician in Great Britain in the first portion of the twentieth century. He he you know probably nowadays his claim to fame to the general public would be that he starred in. The man who, you know, the man who knew infinity, and mm-hmm. he's the person who discovered Ramanujan, or at least to whom Ramanujan uh, addressed his original letters. But yep. one of the things that Hardy said in uh, in his book, which I've always used as a an example in my uh, in, uh, in my courses, is that Hardy said, "I've spent my entire life studying uh, studying various properties of numbers." These are probably totally useless, but I think of this as art. And if society is going to record, accord respect to artists, they should accord a reasonable amount of respect to mathematicians who study the artistic patterns of numbers. But I don't think it'll be worth anything at all and it'll never be used. And Hardy died too soon to see that the exact material that Hardy and Ramanujan were working on, the difficulty of factoring numbers, is an integral part of the RSA algorithm, which is the basis of almost all the encryption techniques that are used today. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, I think that's a, certainly the wonder of mathematics, uh, but also particularly into cryptography, the way that something that seems very arbitrary, that seems uh, interesting to a mathematician, but not necessarily practical, can suddenly turn out to be something that transforms the way you do things. Yeah, Brian, I've enjoyed this interview a lot, and I know that those people who are addicted to puzzles will enjoy your book, and maybe even those people who are not addicted to puzzles might find that they're addicted to puzzles looking at it, because I think your book is just a whole lot of fun. Um, how can uh, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, well, the easiest thing is my website, which is brianclegg.net. That's B-R-I-A-N-C-L-E-G-G.net. Uh, you'll find all my books uh, on there uh, and also, you know, the way to get in touch and that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter and Facebook if, uh, if people are interested in those. Um, so easily done. Um, also, uh, do you have any projects in the future that we might be interested in doing an interview on? Well, just recently finished uh, uh, my next book, uh, which is going to be coming out in the UK in April. I, th- I think it might in the US might be sort of like June. Uh, it's a book called What Do You Think You Are? 
uh, which looks at what it is that makes you you as a person, as an individual, uh, what's gone into that, all the way from the, the atoms that make your body up through to your consciousness, what that is or isn't, depending upon the, whether you can decide whether or not consciousness exists at all. So it's looking at all the different aspects that come together to make you you in a scientific way. Uh, okay, can you get your publicist to send me a copy? Certainly will. Okay, Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>